It's Monday, April 8th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 202 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is composer, professor, doctor, electronic musician, Sam Pluta. Let's have a listen. Sam Pluta is with us today, and it's a good one. Today on the show, Sam Pluta. Before we get into it, you might notice that it sounds a little noisy behind me. That's because I have all the windows in my apartment open. Getting some fresh air now that it finally feels like springtime, uh, at least for today here in New York. Finally feels like spring, and I need some, uh, some of that good fresh air cleansing the interior of my home. You might also notice that my voice sounds a little strange. It is a little fucked up right now, and I'm sorry if I sound like a Muppet. I'm going to read some names to you. Mary Halverson. Zena Parkins, Chris Corsano, Matt Mitchell, William Parker, Nate Woolley, Mike Pride, Charlie Looker, Sylvie Quavassier, Chess Smith. These are all really remarkable musicians, all of whom have been on episodes of the podcast in the past. And if you want to hear those episodes, please consider becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Sign up as a monthly pledger, and as a thank you, you will have access to the entire archive of the 5049 podcast, which at this point is over 100 episodes. We keep the most recent 100 episodes for free available in iTunes. Everything before that exists only in the archive, and the only way to access that archive is by becoming a Patreon donor. So please consider doing that. It would mean a lot to me. Uh, Patreon has kind of become the most uh, common and popular way for podcasters to monetize what they do. And it's, uh, it's, it's a show of good faith. If you're digging the show, please consider doing that. Please also consider writing a review, subscribing in iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe. It helps. I start every show by asking for this, and uh, today's no different. All right. What do you guys know about Sam Pluta? I have known Sam pretty, I would say casually, for a number of years now. I think I first met him in like 2010-ish. Peter Evans and Tom Blankart, uh, who are also in the archive, um, did a show at Roulette, and I recall meeting him there. He is, I've, I've, in past episodes of the show, uh, when I've talked to Steve Lehman, also in the archive, Mario Diaz de Leon, also in the archive, uh, and more recently, Eric Wubbles, um, I, I've referred to this particular group of people, all of whom were at Columbia at the same time, uh, doing their doctorate work with George Lewis and others. Sam is part of that group. Sam is now a professor at the University of Chicago, but while in New York, he was he was doing his doctoral work at Columbia, and during that time, uh, he you know really put forth uh, a pretty colorful output. He started a record label with Jeff Snyder called Carrier Records. 
Carrier, uh, at this point, has put out something like three dozen records, covering a lot of ground. Experimental music, improvised music, uh, contemporary composition. Sam has also been very active in the Wet Ink Ensemble. Again, you remember Eric Wubbles from, I think, a couple months ago? Together, they lead, along with Alex Minchek, Ian Antonio, Kate Soper, Aaron Lesser, and Josh Modney, they lead uh, a pretty incredible group. They just did their 20th anniversary concert at Roulette uh, last week. And Sam, as an electronic musician and as an improviser, has really got a unique voice. There, I, There's not many people like him. Uh, most of his work with electronics uh, is focused on processing live musicians. He's got a long-running musical relationship with Peter Evans. They've done a number of duo records, um, and they have a really beautiful psychotic thing dialed in. He writes his own software. It is, you know, an utterly unique language. And he's been developing it for a number of years. That's a lot about what we talk about today. And as I mentioned, uh, he's now a professor, University of Chicago. He's an assistant professor of music there, as well as leading uh, their, their experimental music ensemble. It's, it's tricky for me sometimes. Uh, I feel a little nervous talking to people who are, are pretty deep in academia. Uh, but Sam is a really great, approachable guy, and today's conversation was a real joy. If you want to find out more about Sam Pluta, and I suggest that you do, go to sampluta.com. Sampluta.com. And check out Carrier Records. Uh, I think I've actually engineered a couple albums for them. I think I did one for, for Nate Woolley and Peter Evans. Check them out. Carrierrecords.com. Go to the 5049 website. Become a Patreon donor, and uh, and that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Sam Pluta. I went to Columbia. Really? Yeah, I graduated in... Did you meet at Columbia? No, we met uh, teaching kids at Walden School. Right. Yeah. I knew that you did that. Yeah. Um, what was she teaching then? She's also she's a composer, and she was teaching composition and, um, and theory, and I was teaching composition and theory and computer music, and, uh, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the sparks flew. The sparks flew. <laughs> You know, nothing, but, what, what else turns you on other than like computer music <laughs> and, theory, and, and teaching kids theory and <laughs> theory. composition? <laughs> well, it is one of those things. I remember this friend of mine is a chemical engineer, yeah. and like I just remember looking at him one day and be like, "Hey, dude, does it suck that like this thing that you love and care about so much you can't really talk about with any of your friends?" Right. And he was like, "Yeah, it does suck." Yeah. And I like music. I think can be like that. Yeah, I mean, most of my friends are musicians, and I think that's right. something beautiful about what we do is that there's not much separation really between our professional and our, our, uh, you know, social lives. And yeah. those things are intertwined. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, sure. Like in a, in a, in a relationship with a wife, like sometimes like, what did you do today, honey? Right. I wrote some notes. What did you do? I programmed the computer to make sounds, you know, it's, that gets a little old, but, uh, you know, I remember in previous relationships where, where, uh, like, wait, so wh- why do you, why do you need to compose all day? What? I don't get it. You did that yesterday. <laughs> what? Well. No, there's an element to that. I mean, like, I can't another side of it is like, you know, 
in fact my lady like invites like some friends of hers to like a yeah. show of mine she's yeah. like yeah just be prepared like you're probably not gonna like it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I i hate that i tend to give short shrift to non-musicians yep um when they ask me what kind of music i play yep. or anything like that like i tend i'm trying to be better about not being a dick and not just assuming that like they wouldn't know what it is or care about it i think actually a lot of times people don't know what it is but but then they hear it or they experience it especially if they see it live i mean if they hear a record they're like what what is this but right. um it's <laughs> often how i feel yeah. but but then if you see it and hear it live then it's like you can feel the visceralness and the physicality of it and and get why someone would would want to do that right you know um i i love the story uh peter tells of of being in uh union square and he and Sam uh, Sam Kulik used to play like mm-hmm. Christmas, Christmas music yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, Ooh, and, make, yeah. I think they did like pretty good yeah and one day like guy comes up to him and like hey you guys know any Varisi I got uh, sometimes I like to go home and smoke a smoke a joint and, and listen to some Varisi wait I never heard that story yeah and it's like yeah this guy is just like some a fucking, some guy some working some... guy and he loves Varese. You I guess yeah you really never know yeah you really never know yeah and yeah, like I, 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 I'm. It's actually for me. It's like something like borderline. Like I need to talk to a shrink about because when people are like, you know, like coworkers are saying, "So you play music? You play jazz?" And I'm like, "No." Yeah. Well, what that you know shit that you wouldn't fucking care about like that like that's the right. response, yeah, yeah. and it's not good. It's yeah. I think actually, what's you know. I, I always tell my students, like, you, you can't even, and I feel like I'm such an old man at this point. It's like, you can't even imagine. And when I was in my master's program, 2002, uh-huh. right? How did you find out about Cecil Taylor? Like, it was like, I was at in UT Austin, like, great place, great school. Right. Like, and, like, basically on Saturday, I would wake up and go to the library and just see what new records they had and hope yeah. that there was something, hope that there was, like, a cage record you know hope that there was that was it yeah and that was it and now it's like everything that's ever been made is available at all times and there are upsides and downsides to that but one of the upsides is that people actually know what we're doing way more than they used to yeah and we and so we might be thinking in that old way but actually um they they do know what we're doing and you know things like noise and whatever are 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 quote-unquote cool and and then you hear somebody like doing that on a clarinet and all of a sudden oh Mm-hmm. You can do that too. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, to some degree, but also, like now that everything is big and everything's available, and you know, everyone has access to the same materials, you would think, like literally, like this iPhone in yeah. my pocket has all of the answers that all humans have arrived at. Yeah, in my pocket. But people, I find, like, don't want to sound like an old man. Yeah. But a lot of the, like the younger like people I'm around who are just like moving to New York. Yeah. I'm like baffled by like w- the choices they're making in mm-hmm. terms of like music, food, film, literature. Like you come here because you have access to all the raddest shit and like, yeah. you're listening to like, I mean, I don't want to say like Solange specifically, but it's like, yeah. that's the most obvious thing you could have picked. Right. But there's still, there's, you know, there is the, the machine of capital that has been pushing everyone their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And even if they moved here to, to find out about the, the out of shit, they, they, they might not know where to look for it. Right. And it's still, and then, and, and here the decentralization of it has, has become is, is challenging. I mean, if you know where to look, then you can find it. Right. But like i you know, I moved here in 2006 and every weekend we would open up. I don't even remember what village Time, voice timeout. Yeah, yeah. Timeout. And I would look like what's going on. God, what was the venue? It was right over here. Tonic. 
Yeah, Tonic. Yeah. What's going on at Tonic? Because that was the place where you would you guaranteed to yeah. hear some some weird stuff and 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 of a certain quality of of a really yeah exactly. Yeah. And uh, when that closed, and then uh, you know, and when uh, Roulette and um, Issue moved to like bigger spaces, mm-hmm. small space with like a certain quality is hard to find. Yeah. So wait, but so you correct me if I'm wrong. You spent pretty much your entire life in academia in some way. Um, or in an educational environment. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Do you, I mean, so you must enjoy imparting information as well as yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> welcoming I mean, I, it. I, lo- I love teaching. Yeah. I love teaching. Teaching's, uh, you know, the, the uh, that aha moment where, like, a student's eyes just go boing, and they get it. Yeah. Or, you know, honestly, I was telling my friends last night about uh, a recent student of mine where it's like, it's not that he was transformed musically he was just transformed as a person like yeah transformed as a person he Mm -hmm. he he came into music not as the nicest character you know you knew him when he was that character yeah and then transformed and then a year later all of a sudden you're like who is this person really you know who is this person so so it's not just the uh the way that art and music can transform a person's mind intellectually but it's that it's also as a as a human mm-hmm. uh, and so i think that i get a lot of um joy out of that so that's that's what i'm what i'm drawn to yeah yeah and you had that experience it grow, so you, you're from chicago no no i'm from new hampshire oh yeah okay so i grew up in new england yeah grew up in connecticut and new hampshire went to high school in new hampshire and then got as far away as i possibly could why college i went to california so. wait where'd you, you go to when you said cal arts no, I went to uh, Santa Clara University. Really? Yeah. Studying well, composition, or I did. Yeah, I mean, as an I, undergrad, I well, I went in there as computer science. Like, uh-huh. I, I didn't actually study music until I got to college. So, I got to college, and I were you playing I, an instrument? No, uh-huh. I had this idea in high school. Um, I was like, man, I, I, I really, I really want to play music, but mm-hmm. I didn't know how. Like, you know, I, I didn't take lessons growing up, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, oh, you know what? I get to college. I'm going to start taking piano lessons. And I did. <laughs> and, and so, and then, uh, you know, I basically, like, it was, it was almost like I got to the piano and then I just never left it. I mean, now I left it because I used the computer. But, yeah. like, um, I got to the piano and I just, like, got attached to it for four years of college. Uh, and, um, and, and and during that time, I... I um, uh, I started studying composition. I remember I had a voice teacher and he said, you know, uh, you, well, you can, you can either study uh, voice or, or composition because you probably can't be a pianist. You have to start doing that when you're three. Huh. Right. <laughs> like, okay, huh. cool. Yeah. And then I was like, I thought about it for a second. I was like, okay, cool. I'll study composition. I still I continue to study voice and piano. Um, and, uh, and I started composing. And I remember one day I brought in a piece to my teacher and he was like, oh, like I brought in all these the a piece music. for solo piano, solo or? piano actually. Yeah. yeah, I brought in all this other music and it was terrible. And then one day I brought in a piece and he was like, "Oh, hello, maybe you can compose." And and then they bought a Pro Tools system in my like junior year and nobody knew how to use it, so they just put it in a room and said, "You figure it out." And so I did. This is what year we're talking? Two thousand. This is, is ninety seven, ninety eight. I was two ninety seven to two thousand one in college. Yeah, Pro Tools back then was pretty yeah. clunky. Nobody knew how to use it. We had like. Um, opcode something yeah. and pro tools and and basically i figured out how to use it started making like music for film and plays but and let's 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 talk about that piece for solo piano yeah what is what 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 do you think it was about the piece that your teacher looked at it and said oh maybe there's something here it just didn't 
I mean, I don't know. It, it didn't sound like quote unquote classical music. It sounded like something different. Like, and it was, I think, I think maybe it was coming from sound in a way that, uh-huh. that was di- different. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I've been trying to figure out how to talk about this because I'm not a composer who, who, who thinks about like melodies or I, I do actually do all the time. I just make up songs in my head constantly. Mm-hmm. My wife can tell you that's all I, all I ever do around the house. But uh, but that doesn't get its way into the music. Right. And, and but coming up with sounds, that became the from where the music came. So it's like this this was maybe a piece that wasn't really about like uh, tunes in a way, but it was about about sonic events that 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 uh, transpired over time. Okay. And and I think that that. Uh, and and the, the sounds themselves were not. It was non triadic. I mean, I didn't I didn't know what I was doing, but uh, it was just sounded different than the other stuff I'd brought in. Yeah, and it was pushing an envelope that um, I guess I didn't know really anything about. But, but and I, what was your point of reference as a listener or as you know an aspiring composer? What were you listening to? I, mean, I have no idea. Um, I remember. Yeah, I remember in college. Uh, this was. I remember my. I got an album of the Ligeti Piano Concerto. Oh, right, one of the right. the the um, I think the first uh, recording with Imard, um, and um, I think Intercontemporain recording. And I listened to it, and I remember I came into my teacher the next week, and I was like, "This is this is bullshit." And he was like, "Oh, okay." And then like the, ne- <laughs> the next week, I came back, and I was like, my tail between my legs, and just like this is the most amazing the thing I've, ever I've ever heard and and so it was that it was like listening to like like Pendereski orchestra uh-huh. I mean you know also going back to what we're talking about with having music available we had a music library in the computer in the in the music building that was open like two hours a day mm-hmm. and I would spend those two hours digging through the Checking records and out, trying yeah. to trying to find stuff that I found really interesting and um, we probably had like eight records that were you know that weren't Mahler. Now I love Mahler. Yeah. I probably listen to Mahler more than anything else. Sure. But, um, uh, yeah. So, so I think listening, 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 listening. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I, I, this is something I've, like I've, I've known, I've thought about this for a while, but I want to kind of start thinking about it more formally mm-hmm. and what the process is because all of my favorite stuff as a listener has been stuff that the first time I heard it, I was actively dismissive of. Oh, absolutely. Um, and for whatever reason, like, I stuck it out, and years later, it's the thing that I point to as being the most crucial shit. Yeah, 1995, I got The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails, uh-huh. and I was like, what is this? This is insane. It's, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, and, and then then you listen to it, because I, I like uh, Closer, right? Uh-huh. And I listen to it, and it's like, oh, Closer's the best song, and then, like, the more I listen to it, oh, no. Like this other song is the best song, and oh my god! And um, and then over time, man, I go back to that record, and I can't believe how good it it's is. It's so good. I can't believe he made that in 1995 with like Elisa samplers with like a maximum of a four second sample. That's called sweat equity. No, it's like when you when you think about people making electronic music and pop music at that level, how does it sound so good? It sounds so good. It and should th- sound like garbage. It's like eight bit digital are you kidding me right i mean you think about how committed he must have been to his craft to have it come out sounding like that with the amount of work like i don't think i you know i went to i did an audio engineering program in 2001 yeah and i remember learning how to use an akai sampler yeah uh i forget which one it was um but like loading the disc into the front of the machine looking at the waveform and literally like to create a loop of a beat 
yeah. took like two hours. I think this is, I mean, this is something, first of all, people don't understand. Second of all, I think in, in, in like art music or whatever you want to call like the weird music that we make, um, maybe that's understood, but it's not understood in like hip hop. Like how, I'm sorry, but like, like Dr. Dre. Yeah. What a nerd. Yeah. What a nerd. All those dudes. Anyone like, doing come that. Come on. That guy spent like 16 hours a day programming a Kai sampler. Right. I guess, uh, I mean, it's on, on the chronic. It's like, it's basically like four drum samples, but they all sound totally different because he spent all Colored day them, he, EQing yeah. them. And yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, Kanye West, dear Lord, like how many hours, how many, how much of his life has he spent in, uh, in a basement making, I don't know. Making Is music, it a lot? music alone? I would I, say I 90, 90% of all time. I can't welcome him into my consciousness in any way. <laughs> okay. That's like fine. it's just, I can't, I'm yeah. deeply allergic to everything that dude is about. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, but that the point is, yeah, that it's like, I can't, you cannot separate when you talk about like, whether it's fucking Timbaland yeah. or any of these guys, he's yeah. like hip hop producers yeah. who have, you know, part of like what their output is, is this image of absolute cool. Yeah. It's coupled with absolute nerddom. Totally. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that goes without saying. Yeah. It's funny. Like if you, I bet, I bet you would a hundred percent of the time find like instant kinship. If you got into a conversation with like the RZA or any one of these. Totally. Dudes. Totally. <laughs> like, yeah. Like I just don't have to like, I don't know. Have so any style associated with what I do, <laughs> you know. So wait, when you started studying do. composition, yeah, was that you looked at that as just like, like that was something that you were doing in addition to your school? Or you said, "Oh no, I'll make that my living. I'll be study composition and become well, a composer." I was uh, I was also a computer science major, right? And I, I I actually didn't finish my computer science major. I have a minor in computer science, which uh, I realized quickly it didn't matter because I my junior year after my junior year of college, I got a internship. I had a software company writing software, made very good money. Uh, and then after my senior year of college, really all I wanted to do, I had this plan. All I wanted to do was uh, like work at Chili's as a waiter mm. and make music. Um, but Chili's specifically? No, it doesn't matter. Okay. Applebee's. Really, I, th <laughs> right. I think it specifically was Applebee's. Okay. Uh, and I, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, the, the, I went after college. My parents bought me a flight to europe so i could go on a little two-month stint while going around checking stuff out solo you went yeah it's awesome yeah. had a great time like learned how to it's like when i learned how to read basically mm -hmm. and learned how to like be social with other people i didn't know um and uh came back and these uh the bubble the tech bubble had burst so i came back to the bay area um where i went to college and Santa Clara and uh, the tech bubble had burst. So the Applebee's that was down the street from my college that had had a hiring sign for four years of college <laughs> no longer had a hiring sign because all these people had been laid off of their tech jobs uh -huh. and are now working at Applebee's. Applebee's. Right. So, yeah. So, like, basically, like, my dreams were crushed. <laughs> but <laughs> really, See, it, it looks pretty low. <laughs> yeah. Really, in the best possible way. Because yeah. I, I went, I worked for this software company, this military software company. We made a tactical battlefield display. Uh, coded in C and Java, and um, and that's where I learned how to code. Yeah, is at this job. So I had a minor in computer science, but like I realized a couple things. First of all, that I did not want to work for a military software company. Sure. Uh, second of all, that I'm a I'm a pretty good coder. I'm not a really good coder. I'm a pretty good coder. Okay. And if I if I ever needed to, I could always do that for a living. Um, uh, and I mean, up until even getting my job at U Chicago, that was still like very much something I could. 
I could. Have, is that something you've relied on over the years to fill in like income gaps? Um, certain tech things, yes. Yeah. Um, not necessarily like coding at a company, but it's okay. also like what I do as an artist is code. So, yeah. so it's like I've always been doing it. Um, and, and yeah, and so I got this job, and um, I realized I didn't want to do it. Learned how to code. And um, and then applied to uh, grad school in composition, but but I I always felt like I had this thing I could fall back on, which uh-huh. I think is was very uh, liberating for me because it allowed me to just do whatever the hell I wanted rather than worry about like oh I've got to write this band piece so I can get a job at Western Oklahoma State, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and not that writing a band piece is a bad thing. I'd love to write a band piece. There's probably just no bands that want to play my music. You know what I mean? <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So where did you go to grad school at Columbia? So then, yeah, I, well, I did eventually. I went to uh, UT Austin for my master's degree. Oh. And that's, that's where I learned how to do all my software stuff. So I, I, I worked with this guy, Russell Pinkston. Why, why, why Austin? Because uh, because of Russell, basically. Yeah. So this guy, Russell, um, he's a he just retired, which I, I don't know if uh, you've had this with any mentors, but when they retire or whatever, it's actually really it's upsetting because you're like, Oh man, this person was like taught me everything. And now other people don't get to study with him, which is really, and that means they're getting old, which means I'm getting old. Um, but (laughs) that's inevitable. Yeah, it's inevitable. Uh, so, uh, so he kind of taught me all the, all the, um, the technical aspects of computer music. And, uh, I was there for three years. I went to do my doctorate in England. Um, and I kind of had a total, meltdown as a uh, human yeah yeah I, I think like living in california and texas really nice there you know and then yeah. I moved to england it was it was rainy it's like this it's like yeah, gray. it was and... radiant radiant gray and then also you know i left a relationship which was a really good one and that was really stupid and um and then uh you know a totally different i mean man our culture cannot be any more different than english culture so culture shock uh rain uh relationship just meltdown and uh where in england uh birmingham university of birmingham yeah birmingham's um, kind of a dark place too birmingham's a dark place. like as, as england goes yeah. it's not one of the brighter places but i also you know that it was also going there it's a place that's really well known for electronic music they do a great job with it um and then realizing oh like what i really want to do is live electronics i want to do like live manipulation of instruments mm-hmm. and when that was kind of not available i realized that that's what i wanted so it was, it was a good thing and i have, I have lifelong friends from my time there so um came back and applied to columbia got in um and and went there and got my doctorate there so right um yeah that's the education of me so you were in birmingham from when to when i was in birmingham from 2005 2006 yeah yeah so just a year yeah yeah i mean i i yeah i I remember I went to the, I, I loved, this was great. I went to a psychiatrist. <laughs> in England? In England. and uh, it must have been hilarious. Well, it was because I was like, you know, crying and like, ah, I hate it here. And she was like, well, then leave. <laughs> and I was like, holy such shit. such good advice. It was the best advice. I mean, yeah. it was really cold and like, like, just like, well, then leave, jerk. Like, you don't like it here? You don't like English? Wait, do you think she was saying that as a patriot or as a psychiatrist? I think both. I think there was definitely an element of patriotism, <laughs> but she was right. And, yeah. and I left and I like immediately felt better. And, yeah. uh, and you know, um, I went and lived in New Orleans for two months and like just like composed all morning and then worked as a waiter all day. I lived what? my dream. Why like, in New Orleans? Um, I had a friend there, Roy Nealon, amazing yeah. uh, clarinet, uh, clarinet, not clarinet, saxophonist uh, and an all around musician. And um, this was like after, right after Katrina? 
It was right after Katrina, yeah. And I was working Jesus. at a, a restaurant, Benichin downtown, uh-huh. uh, a West African Gambian restaurant, and um, it was it was great. I had a great time. You were only there for two months. Yeah, I was just like working as a waiter, did some dishes. Yeah. Um, they hired me as a waiter because I agreed to do dishes during Jazz Fest. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> They're like, well, you could be a waiter, but you have to do dishes during jazz. Like, that must have been like the shittiest shift ever. It was, yeah. But I mean, you know. So did you, um, did you, I mean, if you're only there for two months, do you feel like you really got to interact with New Orleans and kind of get a taste of it? I, yeah, I definitely got a good, a good taste. I was living downtown and yeah. driving my bike around and I, I love, I loved it. It's a, one of the, one of the great American cities for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No questions yeah. asked. So you came to New York specifically to study with George Lewis, or I uh, studied with George and Brad Garton, um, and uh, studied with Tristan Murray, Fabian Levy. Okay. So uh, you know, a place like Columbia, you study with lots of different. people. I mean, Columbia, in terms of learning electronic music, is like it's a great place. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. The mecca is the place. Yeah, I mean Douglas Repetto. I mean Douglas was there for years, and man, I mean but they I literally learned, invented learned... electronic music there. Yeah, the the you know the Mark Mark Two is still there. So the Mark Two. Yeah, the original. Have you touched it? Of course. Have you played it? Uh, no, it, nobody's played it in like 25 years. Because do you know the uh, artist Tomita? No. Okay, so this Japanese uh, artist who did these uh, like electronic reimaginations of uh, all these orchestral pieces. Uh-huh. Um, and he was doing a photo shoot in the CMC. And there was the the uh, the RCA, um, you know, it hasn't been used for a long time. In fact, like I guess even, even back in the day, the only person that really used it was Milton mm-hmm. Babbitt. Um, like Ushchevsky and Davidovsky used the bukla. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it hadn't been used in like, it's all these tubes. I mean, if you go behind it, it's amazing. There's like hundreds, well thousands of tubes. No. And so they were covered in dust and no one had used it. And, you know, it's like a really, you know, the building is kind of a disaster. Like, I mean, the room that it's in, the the windows are basically broken. I mean, there's just like dusty New York wind yeah. flying through there. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, he there was a switch that said, do not turn on. And he turned it on, and it lit on fire. So, what? So it's yeah, it's it's probably not. So that was the last time they said no one's touching this fucking thing. Yeah, they unplugged it. Wow. Yeah. Is there anyone like who who on this planet is equipped to like revitalize the machine? Yeah, you need somebody who. I mean, Jeff Snyder maybe. I mean, you need somebody who like really understands what tube circuits. Yeah. Um. And I I don't think it's really worth it. I mean, it's not. It's not an expressive electronic instrument. It's not like a bukla. I mean, a bukla is five years later, and it is like one of the peaks of of expressive expressivity in an electronic instrument. And uh, five years earlier, I mean, the the RCA is like really clunky and mm-hmm. it doesn't sound good. And um, I mean, we're, you know, we're going to get into it, but like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you maybe better than anyone understand the importance of having an electronic piece of hardware. Mm-hmm. Be able to connect with it physically, yeah. In the same way that anybody, any violinist, any clarinetist, any guitarist yeah. connects with their instrument. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, like a physical, mental mind meld with this machine. Yeah. Which um, which acoustic instruments, uh, in- instrumentalists, and instruments do. Um, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about uh, lately is how these acoustic instruments. I mean, have all this this information in them mm-hmm. they like have the knowledge of history like and and they were developed over hundreds of years mm-hmm. like um you know the clarinet didn't come about it wasn't just a clarinet right boop, didn't like pop up as a clarinet one day there was like all this history continued evolution of for hundreds of years yeah right um what is the it's like, still evolving yeah like but a, not as much right? not as much i mean the fundamentals are in place but yeah. people are figuring out 
ligatures, yeah. mouthpieces, continually to right. make, you know, advances with the idea of being responsiveness and, you know, helping people execute better. I think one of the things I, lo- I love about, I was thinking about the 20th century, and it's like, even if a flute didn't change much in the 20th century, right. at least not to my knowledge. I mean, there's some like quarter tone flutes. Anne LaBerge plays a quarter tone flute. But but then like the flute started giving back this information that it already had in it. Like all of a sudden, uh, Robert Dick like puts out this book with like a million fingerings for all these multiphonics yeah. and people start learning how to play them. And, and we it's the same instrument, but it sounds totally different. Yeah. So um, so I think there's this like uh, dialogue back and forth between instruments and and humans and their users. And, um, and I think that's something I got out of working with the Buchla. So in 2006, just to backtrack it for a second, uh, Jeff Snyder and I made an album on the Buchla. Jeff plays violin? Jeff, Jeff plays electronics. He plays okay. an analog synth. Um, and uh, on the Buchla 100-200 at Columbia, right? And, and, and just making that album and realizing this like physical interaction with, that we're having with this machine, this machine that totally comes out of like cybernetics. It's like this feedback system where you, you hear something and you plug and you move and you plug and you change a knob and you move. And um, having that interaction, I think, for both of us, in fact, has influenced how we've thought about uh, interaction with computers. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I guess for the last, since that album and, and before that too, um, it's been this like feedback loop between me and the computer where I program it to do something, play with it for a while, have these like hardware interfaces that I'm manipulating the sound with and then realize I can change it. And I think that's, that's kind of the beauty of the electronic instrument mm-hmm. uh, is, is this, this ability to not just interact with it, but then to change it. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you augment your clarinet, right? Like you have bells yeah, but that's, and you, it's caveman shit. Uh, but I mean, it's the same thing. You're augmenting it. You're changing it. And, and, but like here I can go in, I can like, Oh, that thing didn't in the code didn't work. And I can change this thing in the code. Um, I had this experience recently where I've, I, my software, I wrote or the original version in like 2009 and I've rewritten the core of the software. So not the sounds it makes, but like how it interacts with the modules that make the sounds. I've rewritten that four times. So this is the fourth time I've rewritten okay. like the, it's like basically like, you know, taking off all the keys and then putting them in different places. Um, and, uh, this time it happened because I was playing the instrument and I realized I wanted to do something while I was doing something else and I couldn't do it. And it was like a physical feeling. Like I had this like physical, "Ah, I really want to do that thing. And it was the first, not the first time it was a physical, but it was the first time I was like, oh my God, like I'm feeling something like I'm feeling like, like I've gotten an arm removed or something and I'm Uh trying to like move my hand and it feels like my hand is there, but I can't, there's no hand. Right. So, um, so this uh, this came about because I wanted to do something that I couldn't do, and I was feeling the ability to to want to do it. And I realized that the the um, the machine was kind of talking to me, right? <laughs> it's like telling me, "Hey, uh, you you know, I can do these things, but I really want to do this other thing, and you really want to do this other thing. So let's make the change." So um, I went in and recoded this whole thing to make to make that change, and um, and so it's this, uh, what I'm excited about right now is this, this feedback loop between me uh, and the instrument that has been going on for 10 years and is continuing to go on that is similar to the feedback loop in a performance between mm-hmm. me and you mm-hmm. and the electronics mm-hmm. um, that happens uh, in, in performance. I mean, electronic music, I think, is utterly transparent in the way it reveals the imagination of the person behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to like that Trent Reznor thing we were talking yeah. about, like, you know, it's just... No questions asked. This guy was looking well beyond what his means were to to to, to <clears throat> result in something that hadn't happened before. 
Yeah. And, or you'll listen to something like, you know, like a piece like, you know, respect, all respect do, but you listen to like a piece like Voyager, you're like, oh, it sounds like it's from the 80s. Yeah. You know, conceptually, it's absolutely ahead of its time. It's amazing. But electronic music has a way that is so utter, like you you can, a lot of electronic music, you can listen to it and know exactly when it's from or like Uh roughly when it's from. You know, it dates itself in a way that is like, it's like on one hand, it's like alluring. Yeah. Another hand, it's like it's it's hilarious. Another mm-hmm. hand, it's frustrating. Yeah, I mean a lot, <laughs> a lot of the sounds that I'm using come out of actually a couple years ago. Uh, one of my my mentor at Columbia Brad Garten uh, did a a remix of one of my tracks with Peter, um, and he, but he made, gave it a beat. Yeah, it was like, oh god, it sounds just like Nine Inch Nails, you know. And it was like, oh my, that 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 is so ingrained in my my brain. Uh-huh. Even though I'm making these sounds that are not because they're not in a grid like that maybe they don't seem like those sounds they really are and then so listening to that my whole childhood and then or at least from 15 16 on uh and then and then the early 2000s getting really into like um you know afix twin uh, Mm. square pusher these guys and then trying to create a new sound world out of coming from that stuff um i think in in a way we'll we'll date most of the sounds that i make from like late 2000s mm-hmm. um and i uh and I, th- I find that actually kind of exciting it's cool yeah i mean it's it's <laughs> and and i mean you know we're all trying to change um i think that we're, it's a computer music specifically is at a point right now where um uh there's not that much development in timbre in um in the actual the sounds themselves uh, the development is in interaction, so it's in levels of interaction, and then and then in AI, and so it's like ways of interacting with um, you know, neural nets and and, yeah. and uh, machine learning and stuff. So, um, so, but the development itself is not in sound. So we'll see if if uh, the the timbres and sounds of things change too much over if we look from 2010 to 2020. I imagine they actually might, and and you know, but they also change based on. Uh, you know, the aesthetic conceptual wins and losses of the past, which is like you start, you go in and make a record and you start, you start drawing upon like, well, I want, you know, if you're making like pop music, I want this kick drum to sound like it came off an 808. You know, I want this, you know, I want like, you know, some fucking hand claps like from Sucker MCs by Run DMC or something. You know, you have like this, this sort of, it's like at one hand, it's a color palette to choose from. Yeah. On another hand, it's, it's sort of like it's like wine or anything. You mm-hmm. think about like the different vintages. You think about you know what you liked about them, what you didn't like about them, where they were, you know what what failed. You know how do you turn that failure into something cool? Yeah, totally. And and I think like you know looking at uh, in in an improvised context, like there's a lot or a well, yeah, improvised context is like there's there's the sonic palette uh, going back to actually actually going back to like silver apples of the moon and going back to uh on the corner uh-huh. and going back to uh sextant uh-huh. and like these like early 70s like jazz masters who decided to make these electronic albums that are incredible yeah um but then i don't know if they maybe they couldn't tour with it or it just sounded different on tour so so that that way of thinking went away whereas now you can actually do it live yeah. so so there's even like these these like gaps of time where like an idea happens, but then it can't maybe happen or it goes away for a while. I mean, it goes away in the eight, the eighties because of the, the, 
proliferation of the idea that like oh everything needs to be precise and exact and right. like like fm synthesis like dx7s like yeah i love that stuff love me some prints yeah yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah you know but um but uh, but then now it's like going back to like that. We might be like looking backwards 50 years, 40, 50 years uh, for our sound palette in a way while still, like you're saying, ha still having the, the last 10 years and still having, um, you know, the nineties the and, and all those sounds that, yeah. that happened. Um, so it's kind of, I mean, we're, we are, electronic music. We're in a pretty good place. Oh, uh, a great place. Um, historically. Cause there's, there's so much. And then there's so much. And, and you can do it all. And that's the, that's the difference. Maybe. You can do it all at the same time. Right. Yeah. Well, I think someone, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but someone like you, you're kind of, or like all of us, but I happen to be having a conversation with you right now, yeah. <laughs> are in a pretty specific uh, place and pretty unique place where you're looking at things from the perspective of a composer, from the perspective of a performer, yeah. from the perspective of performance and recording. Yep. And <clears throat> like we're definitely, one thing about contemporary music is mm -hmm. that's pretty common now. Yep. Where these were like pretty clear divisive lines Absolutely. historically. Uh, I mean, I always think about the the you know historical divide. So one 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 of the things that was said to me when I was in Birmingham is like, well, people here are either paper composers or they're studio composers. Right, right. That's totally a fine division. It really comes out of the '80s um, mentality, and I don't think it's that way anymore there. Um, but um, but that division made no sense to me as an American. Right, mm -hmm. as an American, I don't get it. Like Americans are all about like electroacoustic music or mixing instruments and electronics. Um, and then there's the divide between composition and improvisation that comes out of like mid-century racism, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's really clear, right? Where, where that's, it's like, well, that's, that's, that's improvised music. That's black music. Right. This is uh notated music. This is white music. And that's what happens in academia. And like, let's make that divide. Right. And then, um, and then there's like pop studio production and recording techniques, uh, and art music. I mean, you listen like, you know, like John Cage recording from like 1983. It sounds terrible. Mm -hmm. It sounds terrible. And then, you know, if you listen to recent new music recordings, which, um, you know, like that have been made possible because of like, you know, like Zadik and like pushing, pushing what new music recording can be, um, and all of a sudden, you know, you have this like convergence of all these things at once. Um, and for me, like, that's what I want to do. I want to do all those things yeah. um, and learn from all those people. So um, figuring out how to talk about it is, 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 is the harder part than actually doing it. Yeah, I think like, well, let's talk for a second because so we have, we have some mutual people in common yeah but there was a strong period of time for you where your peers at columbia so you were you were studying with tristan you were studying with mm -hmm. george mm -hmm. you were studying with um brad garden brad garden and douglas repetto douglas repetto and yep. then your peers were mario diaz de leon yep. eric wobbles yep. steve lehman yep. who else um kate soper alex minchek yes um my god i feel like i'm messing up but that's a solid say. crew yeah it's a really under really solid crew. tutelage like yes like there's a lot of possibility there and I don't know that that's necessarily like you don't always end up with a crew like that. Absolutely. And actually I, I mean the unsung hero here is Fred Lairdall who um, was actually 
allowed himself to be open to all this stuff and then supported all of us in doing what we're Who, who's that Fred? Fred I mean Fred was the like director of the composition program okay right and I mean he's an amazing theorist and composer um, but like his kind of openness about like what composition could be allowed this this you know allowed me and Steve Lehman to be in the same program as um, as uh, Alex Minchek you know mm -hmm. um, so uh, and Kate Soper mm -hmm. so uh, yeah I mean that was a that was a really good time to be uh, in a grad program there. And, and then you have, you know, and obviously somebody like George with his influence and Brad, I mean, they, they, they're not people that fit in the uh, traditional composer mold. And so seeing these people as our mentors who uh, didn't fit in the traditional composer mold allowed us to maybe explore these things um, in uh, a different way, even than they had. Um, so, for instance, and I, I mean, I don't even, I think like in George's music, like he's amazing at composer, amazing improviser, done it all, right? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't really mix those things, right? Mm. And, but his students do. So me and Steve and, and Mario and, and Eric, mm -hmm. um, like actually uh, mix those things in a way that he didn't because, but we saw what he was doing all these things and we felt uh, confident in being able yeah. to do them. So I think it was, yeah, it was an openness. I think it's being in New York, you know, being mm -hmm. in, in a city where there's all these different things going on, where you can go see a noise show or you can go see a jazz show or you can go see an improv show um, and have those things um, change your music. It's, I think it's very easy in academia to get like, oh, this is the way we do things because you never see anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you're in a city like New York or a city like Chicago, where I live now, um, you uh, you absolutely can go see all those things. Yeah. And so it's pretty hard. I think it's it's pretty hard to, like, not allow those things to influence you. Yeah. I think it's quite common and one has to actively resist this in academia for things to solidify pretty quickly and pretty rigidly. By quickly, I mean, you know, over a period of decades. Yeah. Where... The, you know, the, the, there's a threat of, of your ideas being challenged. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm talking from the perspective of yep. of the 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 university. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've I've been in some really uninspiring situations inside music schools. Yeah, um, and I've been lucky to 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 never <laughs> well to 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 really be able to avoid it. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, I taught for 16 years at the Walden School, this program for, for kids in New Hampshire, where I met my wife, where I first played with Peter Evans, where I first worked with, you know, art, players from ICE, uh, where I wrote my first good piece of music, um, and uh, where I taught, like, kids this, like, total hippy-dippy kind of, like, Schillinger-based process system of composition mm -hmm. that um, that was, like, totally divorced from tonal music even though it was like triadic and interval based and um doing that for 16 years also like really allowed me to have it allowed an open approach that I, I did you go there as a kid i didn't i didn't i i i, ta I taught there right after college uh -huh. and i just never left and I, I worked 16 years in a row and no more yeah this is just, just too possible. much going on yeah yes yeah, so when did throughout this entire period of time from Starting school um, in California, into Texas, over mm -hmm. to England, up to Columbia. Yep. When did a performance schedule start? What do you mean? Like when did you? Were you performing all along? As a as a performer. Yeah. Not as a composer. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, when I was at 
Texas. Um, I had a little duo with this guy, Mike Vernuski. Uh-huh. Um, and Mike really taught, actually, Mike taught me like how to, how to collaborate. So he was really a collaborator. He was, you know, got his master's degree in composition at UT Austin. But then I saw like he would do this like collaborations with these like dancers or collaborations with this film person. Um, and so we had a, a, a collaboration called Ready for Japan because we thought that was the only place that we could possibly like the thing we were doing. Um, which is a really dumb uh, name, but most names are dumb. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, we did music, live music for a play. And um, we didn't really have time to like make all the music. <laughs> so we did these like guitar and electronics duos. I was like triggering samples. And so that was the first time I really performed I improvised yeah. at, on electronics. Before that, it was like, wrote a cello piece with live electronics that I would like click a button. Right. Right. And then I started to improvise there. Um, when I got to Birmingham, I wrote a piece for guitar and live electronics where it was very sequential, like one thing after the other, and I would click a button, it would go to the next state. And what I realized was, oh, if I take those sequences, so say there's eight things that I do, in the piece and I make it so that I can um, do them in any order rather than a pre made order. That's the difference between composition and improvisation. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause like there's the you know, idea in, in improvisation. It's like, Oh, they're just making it up. It's like, no, actually we all have like hundreds or thousands of little things that we can do. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, and the magic of it is you find a new thing, but really you have these, these things that you do and it's just like rearranging them in time with somebody else mm-hmm. or alone. Um, and so realizing that, um, I, I started making my software so that I could, uh, do things in different orders. Um, and, and then I started, uh, that was sort of like the yeah. genesis of it. That was the genesis of it. And that's, so that's like 2006. Yeah. Um, and I started, uh, performing with, I had a band called Glissando Bin Laden uh-huh. back in the day. That was you and, uh, Jem Altieri, uh, Caroline Malinay, Alex Ness and Megan Stoops. Okay. Um, so, uh, and, and we had pieces, uh, and the software, aspect of it was kind of fixed but but there was a lot of improvisation uh in that um and started doing this stuff also with with wet ink and then i think like yeah one night at walden when peter was working there i said hey do you want to try doing it and we started playing and it was like oh yeah we need to keep doing this so yeah so uh and then started playing with you know all kinds of people around town yeah i mean peter is certainly a pretty great representation of all of the music slamming together and totally. it's like beautifully virtuosic and and just utterly unique thing no i mean how many how many trumpet players can play what he does who could uh i've seen him do like i don't think he meant to be doing it but he'd do a killer like louis armstrong impersonation yeah. and then you know he could play in a Mahler symphony so yeah, no, he, <laughs> if he literally will tackle the most difficult yeah. you know contemporary composition yeah and also, like, play a burning solo on a bandstand. Totally. And, yeah, and being around people like that, it, it's, uh, it has pushed me in, 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 in that direction as well. So having, having, trying to do lots of different yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you, when you got to Columbia and you started the program, was it easy to start funding, to, to start creating? Cause, so you started a record label. Yep. What year? 2009. 2009. So yep. pretty shortly after yeah, arriving here. Yeah, about three here. years, yeah. And what was the idea? 
Well, it was Jeff's idea, Jeff Snyder. Yeah. Um, and um, his idea was, you know, he, he had been in Wet Ink and he didn't want to do that anymore. He didn't like doing the like the electronics for concert music kind of thing. And he wanted to focus on his instrument building, but he wanted to stay involved. And so he had this idea of like making a record label. And, uh, you know, we have, we're been collaborators since 2006. So we started doing it. But was it, you, you felt like, was it one of these things where like, we have his music, we want to get it released. Yeah. And this like this, trying to find someone to put it out is just exactly a pain it. in the ass yeah yeah we were making albums and and there was no like we made that album on the bootleg 2006 and um and it was basically like we couldn't find a label to release it and in fact it was released by mike Renisky's label in in texas uh-huh. um and we realized oh and and we wanted to make more albums and there was not really a place for this music um i mean there was the closest thing is like something like zadik but right. like you know john's got his whole thing going on you know yeah. like he doesn't doesn't need ours too so uh so um so then yeah we realized we kind of needed to make our own place and part of that was then then going out and finding people who wanted to put out records on our label like you wanted to actively yeah because mission records i uh you know in you know in this conversation i i hope it's clear it's like i, I actually think that you're only you know you're only you are you yourself are only as strong as the people around you right so so bringing people in who you believe in and giving them an uh, outlet for their music uh, only makes your own more interesting Mm -hmm. because then somebody who's interested in that will be like, Oh, that's cool. Well, what's this? Um, You know, and you put, put these things next to each other and, um, and kind of build up. So we've built up, we have over 30 something, maybe it might be 40 albums now. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and so then there's this, this body of stuff that at this point, of course, just exists on a Bandcamp page, but it's a pretty impressive Bandcamp page, and there's all kinds of artists, and there's concert, and and th- that was one of the ideas is putting concert music next to improvised music, mm-hmm. and being like, this is on the same label, this is equally important, and um, and uh, yeah, yeah, but more than just being a place that collects all this music and then and distributes it, yeah, like you've been personally involved in all the productions, not all or- of them but a lot of them so yeah. uh yeah recording or mastering or album art yeah i have no right to be making album art but i do i wish i was i wish i could do that stuff well <laughs> how you do it is you just do it yeah <laughs> but i mean like i looked at like was this i was listening to this record when you walked in it's like i wish i want to be able to do stuff like this oh yeah well they you know that's pretty good yeah um yeah and i mean the best ones like my my album my recent album with peter uh angela guyton made the um She's an artist living in Portugal, and she made the art, and it's like the best looking one we've made because yeah. we actually paid somebody to make <laughs> the art. To do it. You know, well, there is that thing like in in the mind fuck of yeah. of synthesizing all these different influences and then figuring out how to work with them yourself. Yeah, for, this is for me. Uh, I'm speaking for myself. Like the 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 question of quality control. Yeah. is always creeping at me. Like, sure. Oh, like how much better could this be if like I got someone else to do it? Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm I'm pretty happy with yeah a lot of my record covers, but mostly it's like I do this like geometric right. thing, you know, that's that you know it's personal. And yeah, it's, it is what it is. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, like like I said, we, we last two we've hired a professional. <laughs> they're much better. So, was being in New York like arriving in New York, starting to work with people like Peter? Start, yeah. um Was that really like? the beginning of of you working extensively with free improvisation yeah 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 um 
totally. And, and I mean, even and at that time, still free improvisation and composition were still split in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I was writing pieces where I had this idea that I think is, is still holds that like software, um, software can be a score in a way. It's like, and a lot of things that I do, it's like there is a right and there's a wrong way to interact with the thing that I'm doing. And it's my job to also interact with the person who's interacting with it to like, if they're doing the wrong thing to find the right thing, but also the software points them in the direction of doing the right thing. So, so in a way it's a score, it's like a, you know, the, to use the Pauline Oliveros term, it's like software for people. Like it's like right. this like way of programming the person to do the thing you want to do. Um, but then, uh, at that time it was still still separate and yeah i started playing with peter's band um i think it's 2009 we started playing Jeez, it has been that long it has been that long and in wet ink i started playing wet ink in 2008 so um i just was totally blessed and lucky to land in these two kind of avenues of expression that are similar like similar mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and, and in fact getting more similar which mm-hmm. is, you know, as Peter's music's gotten more composed, yeah, <laughs> uh, then the Wet Ink music has gotten uh, more improvised. Sure, um, and people like Josh Mani are putting out albums of of improvised music, a lot like next to uh, these albums of highly composed music. It's at a good place. Yeah, it's at a really good place. Um, so yeah, and then and then kind of folding into the scene and and playing with lots of different people after that. Yeah, yeah. I mean the I've talked about this a lot on here, and it's you know not a groundbreaking observation, but mm-hmm. the amount of ensembles in and around New York or just in and around new music, but a lot of them happen to be in New York, whether it's ice, yep. wet ink, mm-hmm. Talea, Mivos, mm-hmm. um, either or mm-hmm. yarn wire. Yep. There's just so many of them yep. of like absolute, like killers killers yeah killers who you know can tackle anything mm-hmm. creating their own opportunities yes and creating their own concerts yes it's yeah. it's it's i don't think it's ever been like that yeah i mean i wonder you know you look maybe and maybe not i mean if you look historically at like the american composers that like new york based american composers since 1950 right like there's the new york school right and those guys worked with basically david tudor right right that was their band it was them like cajun tudor were on tour for like 10 15 years whatever just as like a duo um and then you have philip glass ensemble Mm -hmm. right so there's this band now um that plays philip's music and and you have steve reichen musicians Mm -hmm. um and then you have these groups in like the 80s that like are really into feldman like um uh uh, nils viglans group uh i can't think of the name right now but like they're they're commissioning and playing Feldman, mm-hmm. you know? So there's these strong connections between composers and performers. Um, and they all do come out of like making opportunities. So I don't, I don't think it's particularly new in the American scene, but right. it, it, it does seem to have had a, a real nice little golden era um, where uh, there's a bunch of groups and they're all kind of making their own, their own way and creating relationships with composers and composers making relationships with them. Um, yeah, and and I think that as a compo- as a composer led group, like Wedding is like a composer performer led group. Um, there's not as many of those those around. Oh, no, yeah. Of composer led group. Yeah. So so yeah. But that's maybe that's more in the tradition of like the Philip Glass Ensemble than totally than, than uh, a Yarnwire, which is really commissioning and making their own opportunities and doing their own thing. Right. But but I think like you know what, what else were we gonna do? Like the, all these, all these amazing players came of age when like 
like there's no symphony job like i mean ian antonio could play in any symphony like the mm-hmm. guy is like a unbelievable um orchestral percussionist but mm-hmm. like he chose to not at some point he like changed directions and chose to not go that route so i, I think that's maybe where we're lucky is that there's these people that that maybe not lucky for them because like those jobs pay better than, than being a freelance <laughs> musician uh but like you know they sh- they actually should be in an orchestra somewhere like 50 years ago right and, and now now they're like here just killing it yeah i mean but these ensembles like it's it's this weird it's this weird I'm probably not the person to be talking about this, mm-hmm. but just as, just as someone as a listener, mm-hmm. someone who likes music, mm-hmm. these groups are creating recordings and performances mm-hmm. that are far more compelling to me yeah. than what's happening at in, in with most orchestras. Yeah, well, it's, they're they're also choosing their repertoire and right. they're choosing who they want to play with, or they're playing their own music, and I think that's a big deal. Like. Even in like European festivals, uh, do a nice job of curating these things, and they're funded and whatever. But like, ask anyone who's been hired to play at them; they don't get to choose what they're playing. Right. It's like, yes, we will hire you because we want your New Yorkness, but but actually, you're going to play this. So, uh, the, you know, these people are amazing musicians. They can kill everything, but they also have taste and they want to play certain kinds of music. And I think that that's I think that's part of it too, being able to curate your own playlist. Yeah. 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 So when did you, you move to Chicago when? Uh, this is my th- end of my third year there. Because you're teaching at the University of Chicago. I teach at the University of Chicago, yep. Electronic music? I teach composition and electronic music, yeah. I run the studio and um, uh, I'm teaching composition in the composition program, in the graduate and undergraduate program. And this was sort of like the natural progression from, based on the last several years of just being in education? Yeah, I mean... Uh, it is a natural progression coming out of uh, of a doctoral program. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess that that would be yeah. like the, the that's what you do. The, that's what you do. Yeah. Um, I also love teaching. Yeah. Um, I don't think these jobs are good for everyone, actually, I th- in and in, in many ways. Um, but I think if I love teaching, I like I like organizing things. Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of the job is an admin and. Um, and you have to, you have to be okay with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have that's, to be, that's the job. That's the job. Um, and I mean, I, I feel like I landed at the perfect place. It's a really fantastic institution, mm-hmm. um, that, that, uh, really cares about its employees. That's not true with, with all universities. Um, and it takes care of them and, and it's an R1 research university where, you know, like a lot of my job is to do my work and to do my research. So while the teaching is important, the research is also important. And you are empowered to shape the syllabus in the way that you see. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I can. Um, it's interesting. I mean, my uh, my my composition colleagues are Gus Reed Thomas and uh, Anthony Chung. Uh-huh. And um, Anthony teaches all of the classes on acoustic music for composition, and I teach all of the classes on electronic music. So basically, we you know it's up to us. Yeah. There's no one else, you know? So, uh, um, luckily I've taught kids for a long time and I know how to teach p- young people how to use technology making music. Um, and so I feel like I've designed a pretty good curriculum there. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you know, th- there's this kind of like 
it's a very simple way of putting things, but you know, for musicians, a lot of, for most creative people, there's the day job, um, that, that helps support, you know, the artistic output. Yep. Does this kind of day job, like how much does it, uh, push forward the artistic output beyond, you know, having money in your pocket? Yeah. Um, I think it does. I, I mean, you know, one of my, the aspects of my job is talking to really smart people. Yeah. Right. And, right. and whether they're interested in what I'm interested in or not, like that's part of the gig is like, you know, you're like going through and, then, and there's people like in totally different parts of the university that, um, um, in like cognitive sciences and stuff that like they have interest in stuff. There's a guy in computer science who's like an amazing turntablist. Right. Mm. Uh, there's a, a, a guy in the Adova who does like all this, like, program program like visual art programming stuff so it's like finding these people around the university to converse with and talk to uh, and that's actually part of the job which is super cool yeah um and then like pushing pushing um certain curricular curricular ideas in classes and then which kind of forces you to have to learn it yeah so so there's that aspect of it too which is super exciting and then man i mean on a day-to-day basis i have students coming in uh with ideas that totally you know trip me out and and put me on in new directions i have mm-hmm. incredible grad students who are you know writing string quartets are writing things with electronics and I, you know i'm learning from them and then i had these undergrads who mostly are into like hip-hop and edm but like some of them are really good and what the what the kids are up to or what they yeah what they're checking both, out both yeah right like a lot of times with the like i'm not a huge edm person it's just not my thing right i'm much more into elian radig right um but uh you know they'll bring in some stuff and a lot of time i'm like okay cool yeah you want to know how the bass why the kick is sounding that way and like man i've learned so much about acoustics um so if you look at any edm track the kick is at 100 hertz and the bass line's at 50 uh-huh right there that that is because that's like two different um two different uh critical bands in our hearing range and so you can hear both of them but if you put the bass and the kick down in the 50 to 60 hertz range you can't hear it and like i've learned that because uh, students brought in their thing it's like well let's we got to figure out why what's, this, what's going on here why this doesn't sound good and Jeez. and then let's look at this track that does sound good hey check it out this this is where these things are so um that kind of stuff is super fun and then you know being able to be like oh yeah if you you know side chain the uh side chain the kick to the uh the bass you'll be able to hear both of them you know things like that right which i don't really do in my music but i have recently been incorporating these ideas in mixing so like um if there's like a hyper active piano and violin that are like in the sim- similar register what i can do is take i can side chain a multi-band compressor uh on the piano and f- and as the violin is playing through certain parts of the register, I'm like taking those registers out of the piano as it's going, and it allows you to hear both of them. And so it's like stealing that like sidechain kicked idea and putting it into mm-hmm. my mixing of piano and and violin. So yeah, yeah. So in other words, like I find it to be uh, really um, rewarding, and I'm learning all the time. I'm, it contributes to your own momentum. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of times it's you know. At the end, we're on a quarter system, so it's like three really intense. I mean, it's, it's really weird. It's a place like U Chicago. It's like there's three of them. It's not really a quarters, right? Right. But but it's, they call it the quarter system, so there's three of them. And you know, we finish in June 10th, and everyone else has been out for a month. And like, I will be brain dead at that point. I yeah. Really, you know. So what do you do? Do you have like a summer planned of composing and performing? Yeah, can't wait. 
Yeah. Yeah. You gonna be able to? Are you gonna like isolate? I'm gonna isolate. Yeah. I mean, my wife is an uh, artist residency for a month, and I'm in Chicago, and um, I'm gonna make some stuff, and I'm actually on leave next year. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, I'll be. I won't be teaching all year, but I'll be able to make my stuff. Yeah. yeah. And you designed it that way. Um, the, the, our, that's the way our system works is you get a pre-tenure leave in usually in your fourth year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So right now you're looking at what that year is going to look like and, and structuring it. Yep. And what does it look like? Um, I've got a piece that I'm ready for me, Josh and Eric for wet ink. Uh-huh. Um, I have, um, I'm working on, in my software, I'm trying to incorporate certain kinds of machine listening, machine learning, um, processes, uh, into like different modules so that I can, um, have these just, just different things that the computer will try to make, try to make certain material on its own mm-hmm. during a performance. So like I might be playing, I'm playing a duo with Josh Modney. He's playing something. The computer's listening to him coming up with something. And then I, I might feed that thing into my system. And so I can, it's just like another way of interaction, which I think is really interesting. Um, so working on that and, um, yeah, I've got some, something, some performance in Europe that I don't think is finalized yet. That okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to, and yeah, it's so all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Doing a little sound art thing, little installation on UChicago campus that I'm really looking forward to in the fall. So all kinds of little, you know, little things. And then I think one of the things I really need to do is just like, you know, formalize some, some theoretical stuff about what I've been doing with the software lately because there's been some big changes that I've made in my uh, instrument that I think are interesting. What do you mean formalized? Like, like just f- coming up with ways of talking about it that uh, that I can get that, uh, that those ideas across. I, I mean, last time I did this was my dissertation, and I think it's a really solid piece of thinking that, I mean hundreds of people have emailed me and said, Hey, thanks for that. That really, where does it exist? It's on Columbia commons. Yeah. You can just download it. It's free and it's just there. And it's just about like how you, how you can design a modular system in software for uh, live performance. Right. Yeah. Uh, And uh, yeah. And so I think that that's had a lot of impact on a lot of people making, making their own instruments. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, that that was in 2012. So there's a lot of of changes. Yeah, there's a lot of changes. And it it might be something that I do every, I don't know, six or seven years. But it's now's the time to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And are you looking at publishing stuff? Writings? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's part of academia is you kind of have to. You have to. Um, But coming up with an avenue for it, I don't know what that would be. Um, I mean, one one of the ideas is to have like Carrier come out with kind of like what the arcana series is yeah. right but um but have just like a collection of different composers uh and thoughts and they could be anything really is that something you're actively pursuing uh it's a it's been a thought for a long time that hasn't necessarily uh happened but but maybe in a year where i have uh some time it, yeah it could. that's a big undertaking it's a big undertaking and i and i wouldn't necessarily want to be the editor because i'm it's not really my strength, but uh, as an organizer and publisher of it, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Man. And what are you doing in New York right now? Um, here, um, I had a show on Thursday with Kate Soper uh-huh. at the the New York Festival of Songs. So Kate curated this concert of all voice and electronics. Oh, wow. So I did the electronics for that. And then um, uh, Monday, we have a roulette show, Weddings' final concert of our 20th season. Tomorrow. 
That's tomorrow. Yeah. 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 And uh, I have a piece by Marielle Roberts uh-huh. or, that Marielle Roberts is playing uh, that we kind of we kind of wrote together. I mean, like I guess it's, I, she's amazing. She's amazing, and it's very hard to it's very hard in, in a piece like this. It's like I have another piece with this with Dana Jessen that's like this, where it's like really we both wrote it right like mm-hmm. in the end i don't know if my name is be, be on it like but we've talked about it. it's like kind of we both wrote this piece right so i made these analog synth tracks um where i improvised on the analog synth and then edited them together into these sh- clips and then i sent them to marielle and she kind of recorded some stuff and like put it in time and then i got the recordings chopped them up like placed them over the top of the recording of me and then figured out a way of notating it. Oh God! And it's a it's a great it's a really awesome process. Like and and that's not a traditional compositional process. No, like, um, it's hyper specific to the individuals. It's hyper specific to the individuals, but it's also it's like, you know, you're talking about oh we're blessed to have all these players like somebody like Mariel or Dana. It's like the, these people can play anything you write them, <clears throat> and they can improvise, mm-hmm. and they can come up with their own sounds, and they're totally game for anything. Um, and like, what a blessing, what an amazing thing. Um, and then to be able to have this kind of like feedback loop of a compositional process, I feel like is, you know, is that a process you think you'll use again? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it's what I mostly want to use. (laughs) I think, I think also like I'm a social person, right? And composition is not a social, no, like sitting in a room alone. That's no fun. And then also I, a lot of my music is not. It sounds way harder than it is. Okay. Right? Like it's actually not that hard to play. It's not like Fahrenheit. It's not like it's not like um, I love the story in Steve Schick's book about uh, learning Bone Alphabet. It took him nine months to memorize Bone Alphabet. Right. Right. Nine months. Right. To learn a ten-minute per- solo percussion piece. Uh, that's crazy. And like I don't, I don't want to have. That's I don't want to. I don't want to be in a room alone for nine months, and I don't want somebody else to have to be in a room alone for nine months. Yeah. So, so. Uh, this kind of interaction where it's like very social is, is I think more interesting for me. Yeah. 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 It's, it, it, from the outside, it sounds a little more enriching than yeah. <laughs> sitting in a room for nine months. Well, it's also like, I don't have to know. I mean, I know a lot about the cello and I've written a lot of pieces yeah. for strings, but like, you know, then in the recording, what was really fun is like hearing this thing that Mario came up with and being like, okay, I think she's on the D string there and she's left hand pitching the A string and, you know, like having to conceptualize like what she's doing, something I would have never thought of. Right. Like, I would have never written that and I would have never conceived of those sounds, but hearing her do it, I can notate it. And I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a different process. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting and it's, uh, and it's opening up avenues of thought. Totally. And that's the, I mean, that's the idea. That's what we do. I appreciate you finding the time to come over here. Oh, man, this was really fun. Thanks, Sam. Hopefully you'll edit out the... uh, What should I edit out? I don't know. There's some rambling going on. I think it's good shit. Yeah. All right, thanks, man. Thank you. All right. That was my conversation with Sam Pluta. In the background, you can hear uh, an excerpt from his new record with Peter Evans. Just came out, and it's, uh, it's spectacular. Live record. Very, very unusual musical relationship those two have, and it's excellent. Go to sampluted.com if you want to find out more about Sam and what he's up to. He stays busy. There's a lot to check out. Also, check out Carrier Records. While you're online, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show in iTunes. That's it. 
We'll be back next week. Next week is an extra, extra good one that I've wanted to have happen for a long time. So I'm psyched that it finally did, and you guys will get to hear it. All right, that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you soon. Bye.